Let me pray, and we'll walk into God's word uh, this morning. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you are a good and gracious God, um, that you are sovereign and powerful as well over all things, and we confess that we are in need of you. We are in need of relationship with you through your son, Jesus, that he, by grace, has offered himself for us, the just for the unjust, that we might have relationship with you, Lord. So we're grateful for the truth of the good news of the gospel that can set our hearts right before you, that can change us from being in our sin to being saints, saved by your grace. And Lord, we confess to you that even many of us in the room as believers come with heavy hearts and burdens and wonder if you're working in our lives and we need your spirit to to work through your word in our lives that we might believe in real time and real space that you're working and you are powerful and you are gracious. So Lord, all the burdens that we take, we brought here this morning, Lord, we pray that we could rest in you and what you've done for us to bring us life as well as contentment, as well as the truth that you are with us always. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a work as you do through your word. Help us believe that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, maybe you remember, it actually rained a few weeks ago. The next morning after a rain shower, I was getting our youngest off to school, and the bus was on its way, and we walk out the front door under the trees, and he said, it's raining, Dad. I'm like, son, it's not raining. There is water that's dripping down off the leaves from the trees. I wish it was raining. We need the rain, and he began to look up at the trees, and I don't know if you have this kid in your family, but he's still amazed at things that I'm not really amazed at anymore. It's really fun, like little things in life that I just pass by. But he's also the kid, our youngest is also the kid in our family that has like 50 questions. And I don't know if you've ever watched Seinfeld, but he's the kid that can can have a conversation about nothing. And we can extend that conversation really in a really long way. And so he looks up at these trees and he's like, Dad, look at that pine tree. I mean, it's in our front yard. It's been in our front yard. And it's like a couple hundred feet tall. And he's just amazed at this pine tree. And so he starts talking about pine trees. And I said, yeah, but it's magnificent. It's incredibly tall. Look at how amazing it is and around all these other trees. And I said, but listen, you know, as, as, as amazing as it is, if you find a pine tree that is that tall and it is off by itself, it's actually a bit of a danger to our house and the neighborhood and people. And he's like, well, why? I said, well, pine wood, so we go into the whole thing. Pine wood is a softwood tree. It's softer. It's not as dense as some other trees, and so it's prone to breaking. And if you think about how skinny in relation to how tall this pine tree is, that becomes a problem. And he says, yeah, Dad, you know when you, get the, you make me get the cart in the backyard and pick up all the branches that fall? It's all pine branches. There you go, buddy. And then I also tell him that, listen, the, the root system for that tall of a tree that is 
relatively skinny and that tall doesn't go real deep. And while it goes wide, it's really shallow. And so when heavy rains come, you'll see pine trees that fall down. And when heavy winds come, you'll often see, buddy, you'll see pine trees snapping like the lady down the street a few months ago that her pine tree snapped and it almost hit her car. And about a week later, we're in the backyard and the closest pine tree to our house is about 30 feet from any other pine tree. And we're under it. He's like, Dad, is it going to break? It's a little windy. Unbeknownst to me, I created a fear of pine trees, you know, just parenting 101. So, but the reality is he got this. He understood something from that conversation. As strong and as magnificent and as tall as that pine tree looks, left on its own, solo on its own, without other trees to protect it and stabilize it, it is weak. It's weak and it's dangerous when it stands alone. Listen, when the winds and rains and storms come in our life, we think we're like pine trees oftentimes, don't we? We stand tall. I'm not so tall. We stand tall. We strut our stuff. We think we're so strong. And when the troubles of life come, the reality is as strong as you think you are, we are often like pine wood, and our, re- our roots don't really go that deep. And maybe you say this morning, no, that's not me. I'm an oak. Sure, you're an oak. I'm an oak. My motto is, I'm the captain of my own ship. My motto is, if you want something done right, do it yourself. How's that working out for you? Really? Maybe it's brought you riches. Maybe it's brought you success. But at what cost? Are you totally exhausted? Are you lonely because of that? Are you discontented with life? Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 4 through 16, page 555 on the Bible next to you. Words will be up on the screen. And Solomon's going to observe something else about life under the sun, vanity, hevel, the idea of vapor or smoke. Think about smoke. You can't see through it. It's there and it's gone. And he observes this vanity in life, the vanity of going it alone. He's familiar with this. Remember, he's a king. And when you think about a king, a king is often alone. A king is often lonely. He's the top dog, and at the top, it's often a lonely place. We're going to look this morning, and Solomon's going to show us this rugged individualism. We're from Texas. I don't know any rugged individuals here. Rugged individualism and how that plays out in your work and motivation for work, as well as relationships, as well as positions and places of power that you might find yourself in. He's going to deal with this rugged individualism and he's going to set it against being with a community, being with other people, and the benefits, the wisdom. We're in wisdom book, we're in Ecclesiastes. It's a book about practical wisdom and life. The blessing of being better together. So that's the big picture of where we're heading this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, look at it with me, 4 through 16. And before I read it, what you're going to notice, I want you to notice this as I read. There's going to be three sets, 
three sets of comparisons. He's going to compare the motivation for work from the envious and then the opposite of that, the lazy worker. And then he's going to go to the person who is solo and has nobody around him to the person who has a team around him. And then he's going to compare the, the old king in power with the young king who has wisdom. So notice this as we walk through this, the workplace, relationships, places of power, going it alone. Let me read it. 4-4. Four, four. Then I saw, that's what Solomon's doing. He's observing life under the sun as it is, the rat race. Then I saw all the toil. He's been there before. All the skill and work comes from the motivation from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool, conversely, folds his hands. He's lazy. And he eats his own flesh. His conclusion is this about this comparison. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Second comparison, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, neither son or brother, he's so low, yet there is no end to his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Another side of the comparison, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward first for their toil. For if they fall, second, they can lift each other up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has another, doesn't have another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one, who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 13, the third comparison. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take counsel. For he went from prison to the throne through, in his own kingdom, he had been poor. I saw all the living who were under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place of the new young king. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led, the young king. Yet those who come later will not rejoice even in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Let's look at the different comparisons of going it alone. The first is in verses 4 through 6. Look back at verses 4 through 6. Here's what you see. You see this competitive envy driving the motivation of this worker. Verse the sluggard versus the lazy who is, if you want to say it in our vernacular, he's rejected corporate America and the success ladder, and he's like, no, I'm going to go get the tiny house. I'm going to go be the guy down by the river, and I'm not going to work at all. I'm going to be lazy. So you see the hard worker motivated out of envy and climbing the ladder. You see the sluggard, but the same results. There is a discontentment here. Look at Solomon's, though. Look at his solution in verse Six, the fool foes his hands, that means he's lazy, and he eats his own flesh. It's just the idea that he has nothing, and then it's self-destructive because he's not working. Look at verse six, better is a handful, here's his solution, better is a handful of quietness, one handful, than two hands full of toil in the striving after wind. I don't think he's saying there just be lazy and go down by the river and have a trailer, but I, I do think he's saying this, he's saying, listen, Better to work and have a good work-life balance 
than to be the competitive envy person that never catches up. You're never gonna catch up to the Joneses and the other person is just down by the river, lazy, not working at all. And so I, I think he would say, if you look at it in this way, if you look at Solomon's life, you go, why is Solomon saying this? Why is he going here about motivation to work? You know, if you go to 1 Kings, and I've gone there a few times just to look at the background of Solomon. When you go to 1 Kings and also 1 Chronicles, you, you find out more about Solomon and his life, how he lived, what motivated him. And what you find is that we think we struggle with some competitive envy. Remember why he took all those wives? One of the reasons he took all those wives was what? To expand his kingdom. He took wives from the king of Egypt, king of Sodom, all kinds, Edom, all the way around. He did that to expand his own kingdom. And not only that, you remember all the homes that he built for his wives and the pools that he built and all the magnificent temples and places. You can go to Israel today and see the remnants of the pools. You know what other kings, he says this in First Chronicles, other kings did the same thing. And so there is likely Solomon trying to keep up with the Joneses, and the Joneses were other kings to him, okay? So he's trying to keep up with the other kings like Egypt, who built the same kind of stuff. His excessive works, and he says it in the book of Proverbs 14, he says this, you know what envy does? Competitive envy, it rots the bones because you never get there. Vanity, it's gone. You can never get it. Striving after wind. And you know what the Bible says, the proverb says about being the sluggard too, right? Solomon says about the sluggard, a little folding of the hands to rest, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes at you like a vagabond. Three or four places in the Proverbs, it talks about the lazy person, the person who doesn't work, which is kind of the opposite motivation, the response, the rejection. Let me say it this way. Here's your first thought from the, this comparison. If competitive envy or self-destructive laziness, that's what I think you see here, marks your motivation to work. The result is a lack of contentment or a health, healthy work-life balance. It'll be elusive to you if that's what you're striving after. And Solomon calls both of those things, what? Vanity and striving after wind. If we put names on these two different types of people just from life, if we could do that, if we could correlate that, we might call the guy the competitive, envious person, Mr. Jones, already alluded to that. And you could find a variety of people or characters that you could put in the other camp of lazy. Maybe it is the guy down by the river. Maybe it's Homer Simpson. You know Homer? You're like, pastor watches the Simpsons. Homer Simpson, like he has a job, but he's lazy. He's not trying to get ahead. He sits on the couch and gets fat. He's a sloth. He's lazy. He complains. He grumbles. Middle-aged, middle-class guy, and he puts pressure on everybody else. Homer Simpson. 
Let me ask you, are you content? Are you content with one handful? Or do you need two handfuls? Do you need two scoops? Meaning, the competitive, envious Mr. Jones. Is that driving you? Well, my neighbor has this house. I'm going to one-up it. My neighbor has, now my neighbor got, you know, the camper. I got to get a camper. My neighbor's friend's house looks like this. Mine has to look better. The never-ending race toward envying some, a neighbor, envying the person next to you. Is that driving you in work to do more, to toil more, and at what cost? Or do you need zero handfuls? That's the lazy person here. No handfuls. I'm done with work. I want to be lazy. I'm not going to work as in to the Lord, as the Bible says. Which one might mark you? Here's the interesting thing about both the envious who works hard but works to, to trample over people. The only people at work that are around that person who are, who's climbing the ladder are people like them. But it's often a very lonely place to be because you're not, you don't really care about the people <laughs> to the side or below you. You're just trying to get up that ladder. And to the lazy often finds themselves lonely too. It's a really interesting dynamic. You know, if, you know, as I've studied this text and looked at this text, I was talking to my wife about it. Um, this is, if I had a men's retreat to preach and I had four sessions, after walking through this text this week, I think I would take this text and just parse it out into these comparisons. And the ladies are like, sweet, you're not going to apply this to me today. Men, think about this in your life. Had this, I've had to rest and wrestle with this myself this week. There is a tendency to pursue the rat race, isn't there? There's a tendency to try to keep up with the Joneses. The challenge, the temptation of that. And the consequences are often pretty dismal as it relates to relationships and people close to you. It's pretty dismal as it relates to the contentment or lack of contentment that it breeds in your heart or the exhaustion that it breeds in your heart. That's one side of the pendulum in today's culture. I mean, most in the last 50 years, at least in our culture, man, we call the rat race success. To climb up that ladder, that's success. The opposite is the pendulum swing of going, you know what? Homer Simpson, I'm gonna be him. I'm gonna be the guy that shows up to work and clocks in and out, but I'm not gonna work hard. I'm not gonna try to advance work. I'm gonna be lazy. I'd rather be at home playing video games and watching TV. I'm not gonna pour effort into this. And I just wanna go here because, listen, for our families, particularly for our wives, men, man, they... Our wives rightfully want a man who works hard but who is present for them and the children and is present. You can't do that when you're aiming at envy and a rat race. And the same is true really for the lazy man. 
for the man that is not willing to work hard. I've never met a woman, godly as they might be, who doesn't struggle with bitterness, who doesn't struggle with bitterness when their husband is lazy, when their husband doesn't work hard and try to help the family. And often that bitterness comes because they have to work harder. And I know every situation is different. But this is real life, isn't it? Competitive envy or laziness marking our motivation for work. So we've seen Mr. Jones, if you will, and we've seen Homer Simpson, but we also have another comparison here. Keep looking at the second comparison, and really this marks people who are going it alone, effectively. Look at it with me. Verse 7 and 8 in particular. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, so this is his second vanity that he sees. He sees one person who has nobody else not a son, not a brother to share life with. Yet look at what it says. It says, there's no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. And he never asks, for whom am I toiling? I'm depriving myself of pleasure. This is also vanity and striving after wind. This guy has a single-minded pursuit, solo Minded pursuit toward riches and it leaves him exhausted and he's got nobody to share it with. If the first guy's primary issue is contentment, this guy's issue is loneliness. We could call this character really easily Ebenezer Scrooge, couldn't we? Scrooge, solo, lived his life, much of his life for riches, lonely, share it with nobody. What do you think about Solomon here? This is the guy saying this as a vanity that he's seen under the sun. You think he didn't seek after riches? The guy had two trillion in gold. You think he wasn't lonely in that pursuit? First Timothy chapter six, you know this passage likely. First Timothy chapter six, verse eight and 10 says this. But if we had food and clothing with these, we will be what? What's the word? Content. Jesus tends to talk about contentment with our needs as well, doesn't he? But those who desire to be rich, meaning that's their focus, that's their single aim, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here it is. For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil It is through this craving, desire, craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and also pierced themselves with many pangs. One of the pangs of pursuing greed and riches on your own is that you leave yourself in a lonely place. So here's the thing. Here's your second thought for today. If if a single-minded drive for riches marks your motivation for work, not only will you be discontent, you will have an aimless loneliness, and that will be your legacy. Do you see this guy in this text? He doesn't have a legacy. He has nobody to share this with. And man, maybe you say, eh, money's not my thing either. I'm an oak. I'm not the pine tree. I saw this quote this week. I thought it was pretty interesting. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change me, 
But when I'm winning at Monopoly, I'm a terrible person. Maybe you don't have money, and if you did, Monopoly would happen. See, Ebenezer Scrooges, what we do when we're Ebenezer Scrooges, we exchange coin for companionship and care of other people. This endless pursuit of riches leaves us lonely. And listen, you may not be the single person doing this. You might be the married person doing this. And the people around you are the lonely people. The people around you are the lonely people. For you old timers, Harry Chapin, the song, Cats in the Cradle, a Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and the Man in the Moon. When are you coming home, Dad? And he says, don't know when. But when I do, we'll have a good time then. And the song does what? It traces this little boy's life Wanting time with his dad. Lonely because his dad's not there. And then he's 10. And dad wants to play, and he wants to play ball with his dad. And his dad's not there. He's working. He's pursuing the rat race dream. And then he's in college. And then you see it turn a little bit. He's in college. And the son says, don't have time, dad. But dad wants to start spending time with him. And he doesn't have time. And then this boy who was lonely becomes a man, and his dad wants to spend time with him. And now the man, it's a cycle, has responsibilities, and his child is sick. No. When we pursue riches, a solo pursuit in life, we end up being lonely people, and we make others around us lonely and desiring as well. We've seen Mr. Jones, we've seen Homer Simpson, we've seen Scrooge, but there's one more comparison here. Skip down with me to verse 13 through 16, and you're going to see this comparison. Look at it. It's kind of hard to make sense of. If you look at it, you're going, hey, how does all this fit together? Young person, young king, old king. Think of it this way. It's a cycle. So you have this old king who's been in power, okay, and he's has popularity. He's grown older. He was once young and poor, and he listened to advice. But you know what? He's been doing it so long that he knows what he's doing. And he stops taking the advice of friends and companions because he knows what's up. He knows how to lead, and his name is really important. The spotlight needs to be on him, so he's the man. And his failure to take advice loses him the thing that he treasures most, his kingdom, his spotlight, his power, his status. He was once young and wise and listened. He became old and powerful and popular. And a young king took his place. And the young king was wise. And then guess what happened to him? At the very end of this text, it says the people don't listen to him either. The implication is this young, wise, willingness to listen, humble king becomes a proud king who doesn't listen. That'll preach. And you try to fit David into this a little bit. This is Solomon talking. You try to fit David into this mold a little bit. It works for a little while. Doesn't quite fit. You think Solomon, 
even his own life, reflecting on his own life. Doesn't re- the, the example doesn't really fit either one of them, but it, it actually makes me think most about Solomon's son, because Solomon's old thinking back about this. Do you remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was the king of Israel after him? Do you remember 1 Kings chapter 12? There's some wise counselors that come to King Rehoboam and say, listen, be a servant-hearted, humble king. Don't have a heavy yoke on the people, and they will follow you, and they will trust you. And what does King Rehoboam do? Now, nah, I'm going to listen to my friends. And his friends told him the very opposite. You need to drive them harder. You need a heavier yoke on the people of Israel. And not long after that, what do we know about King Rehoboam? They were throwing stones at him and he fled. Here's the thought. If the spotlight of power and position drives you, listen, it can, y'all. The spotlight of power and position, either a position or power that you want or you have to maintain like this king You will tend to not heed wise counsel, which loses you what you treasure most. Solomon also has something to say about this in the Proverbs, doesn't he? Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, right? But the wise listens to advice. Can I tell you this is primarily a warning To us who are middle-aged or older, we've done a little bit of life, and the tendency for us is to say things like this, well, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I know more than you. Thanks, young man, young woman, you're idealistic, it doesn't work. We've got to be willing to take advice even from the younger or the people around us, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO. It doesn't matter if you're the lead pastor. It doesn't matter if you're at the top of the pyramid all alone. Humility. Listening to others around us. And when we don't listen, we are at the top of the pyramid, but we go it alone. It's also an encouragement to the younger, I think, to speak up. It's also a warning to the younger, though, because you can get there. You can become the old king. No power and position and the spotlight are are like a dangerous drug in our lives. And it can take down any of us. I know you think that can't happen in a church and in church leadership. Look around. Absolutely can. I don't know if you remember this character, but in the movie Braveheart, I go there a lot. Remember Robert the Bruce, the young future king of Scotland? He wants to join forces with William Wallace, but what's his problem? His problem is, is his dad. His dad's still holding the cards. His leprous dad making decisions with the nobles. Because for a long time, they've just been negotiating with England. 
and long shanks and making it and getting by, but still being oppressed. And the dad never listened. The king of Annandale wouldn't listen to his wiser son. So we've seen Lord Annandale, we've seen Scrooge, we've seen Homer, we've seen Mr. Jones. Listen, we all can struggle with this. Any of those things we can struggle with. We can see ourselves as that pine tree standing tall. And yet there's danger in that place. But look at verse 9 and 12. Love this. Verse 9 and 12. 9 to 12. It's really the second part of the second comparison of the solo person to that person who does life and work together. That's the context, but it really applies to all those different folks that were going it alone. The wise old king, the envious, the lazy, the greedy. And so we're putting it here. Verse 9 through 12, two are better than one. And this is simple wisdom here, isn't it? There's nothing earth-shattering about what Solomon's saying. We know this truth, but here's the thing. Here's your thought. God's designed for living and working in community with other people. Two are better than one. I know you're, you're thinking right now, you know what? I, I'm an introvert, and I kind of like going it alone. And people are hard. And that's true, and we'll get there. But two are better than one. Three are even better. A plurality are better. Think about it as it relates to work. Look at what he says. Why? Here he gives reasons. He gives four reasons. Doing it together, better together, you know, the network name at your work, better together. The code on your Wi-Fi password, better together at work. We have a good reward for their toil, meaning... Man, the solo person can work and work and work, but he can never multiply his effort, his resources like more than one person can. So even for work, there is a better reward than being Ebenezer Scrooge. Your bottom line increases. It also means, look at it, that you can lift one another up. If one person falls, the other one can lift them up, meaning you can pick somebody up when they fall. You're not alone. Guess what? Work even can continue when you're down. I love this in the New Testament, Galatians 6, 2. It says, bear other people's burdens. The, The word burden there means debt. As a Christian, we have a debt to one another, to care for one another, and to lift each other up. We can pick each other up. Two are better than one. It means that you can lean on each other in tough times. Do you see it there? Look at verse 11 because we misinterpret this one a lot. Verse 11 says, and again, two lie together. That's not sexual. Keep looking. They can keep warm. That's more the example of, hey, we're at 10,000 feet up in the mountains and a blizzard came and it's really cold and two dudes have to spoon to make it. All right? Not enjoyable, but we can both make it through that. We often apply this text to marriage, and that's a fine application, but notice the comparison here in the text is two is better than one, lie together, and it's comparing that to the, to the solo person, okay? And you're like, man, I have that on my ring, my, my marriage ring, my wedding ring. It's okay. It's an okay application, but it's not just to marriage, and if you keep reading, three, 
full cord is not quickly broken. We have major problems there if you apply it that way. But they keep warm. The implication to this passage is mean you can lean on one another through hard times and you can make it. You can't do that solo. Also, you can't do that if you're envious, if you're stepping over people. You're not leaning on anyone. You're stepping over people. And last, it means, look at it, if someone comes and wants to prevail against another one, meaning there's someone there that wants to take from them or hurt them, it's a lot harder if there's two people there in a fight. So there's protection. It means other people can have your back when troubles come lurking. Think about the king. Do you not want, if you're a king, to have a detail to have wise counselors, and when somebody wants your throne to protect you and care for you? Now, two are better than one. Three's even better, a plurality. This text is about community. And maybe at this point you could say, you know what? This is all real practical wisdom that you're giving me today, and in Ecclesiastes, and I know it's a wisdom book, but I can go watch Jordan Peterson and get the same thing, better together. I can go listen to Tony Robbins. I can go to a work conference and get that truth. I know that two are technically better than one. I don't like it sometimes, but I know that. But notice the problem, and I watched some clips as well, and I think there's practical wisdom wherever you look. But you know what the answer is? In any of those places in human wisdom? Okay, now you know it, just go do it. Just go do it. Don't be envious. There's something in my heart that wants to get ahead. Uh, I struggle with laziness. Just don't be lazy. Pick myself up. Um, I have a thirst in my soul. I have a thirst for money, and I want to do it alone. I don't want anybody around. I want power and position and spotlight. See, they can tell you not to do it, but what's the solution? See, the beauty of God's word is it gives you the solution to people who pursue our own way. That's who we are. We pursue our own way, our own treasure, our own name, our own path. That's the problem. And we have a broken relationship with God because of it. The Bible says it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each to our own way. Envy. These are just some of them. What's our own way? It could be any of the things we've talked about today. Envy, lazy, power, possession. I don't want to be with people. All of those things. Our own way. But he laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's Christ, the Messiah. He brings us near. He unites us with the Father. The Bible says that we're united. We have union, beautiful truth, with Christ. We're not lonely. Does anybody tell you, just go be content. Just don't be lonely Now, the Father, through the Son, has come near, and he's always with you. And he provides a contentment 
that, there, that nothing in the world can provide. You hear it in the words of Paul in Philippians 4. We know this text too. In Philippians 4, he says, I've learned, Paul's talking, he says, I've learned the secret of being content. To go with a lot, to live with a lot of stuff, and to live with a little. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He had status. He had money. He had power. He had all these things. And then he came to know Christ, and he lost all those things. But it was gained to him, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And he says this in Philippians 4. I can do all things. What's all things? It's not breaking bricks. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content, whether I have a lot or a little. little. One handful's enough. I can be content in any circumstance. Not because of me, not because Jordan Peterson says, pick yourself up, because of Christ. The world doesn't have that option in its human wisdom. As much as this is a book about wisdom, the beauty of the good news of the gospel is that God brings us from far away to near. And he can take people like you and me who are envious, who are greedy, who forsake relationships with the people we love the most. And he provides his lavish grace in our lives, even if that still marks your life to some degree. And you could elbow your wife or your husband today. His grace is enough. It's sufficient for you to find your contentment in Christ and to do it in community with others. That's the way we are meant to live. We're meant to live life together. Not only does he save us from those things, he saves us into the body, the body of Christ, different parts, the household of faith, the New Testament calls it, the family of God. He saves us not to be lone rangers, to, to live in community with one another. That's the church. That's what it is. It's the body of Christ. We need each other. We're not the pine tree. Let me tell you what the church actually is. Let me give you a picture of the church. You ever seen coastal hardwoods? I've been dogging on California. You need to go to California. You need to see a coastal hardwood. You got to go to California to do it. They're the tallest and biggest trees in the world, 350 foot tall. They're some of the oldest trees on the planet that can live a couple thousand years. Think about that. They have literally their own ecosystems in the tree because they're so big that dirt falls and plant life and worms have their own little ecosystem all their lives in a tree in a coastal hardwood. And you ask, how do they stand the test of time? How are they that big? Well, the wood is dense. Did you know that they have a foot of bark that protects the tree around them from critters and things? Did you know that they have a root system? And it's not super deep. But you know what the root system does? It pans out. And not only does it pan far out, 
but it intertwines with other coastal hardwoods around it. See, coastal hardwoods only grow in groves. And not only does that help the stability of this 350-foot-tall old tree, but as they intertwine, those root systems come together and sustenance is given from one tree to the next, back and forth. There's an intertwining that brings stability and nourishment to the tree. That's the church. It's like a coastal hardwood. 2,000-year-old redwood. That's the church. And it stands together. We stand together. We care for one another. We're sustained by God from above like this tree, but we sustain one another and we're sustained by one another. There's an interwovenness providing this stability and protection and care. See, the Bible knows nothing anywhere of the maverick follower of Jesus. Shows up to church like it's an activity on a Sunday morning and leaves and is not connected to the body. It's not the church. You can't read that anywhere in the New Testament. You need to be connected to the body. You cannot make it as the pine tree standing alone. You're not strong enough. You're not as strong as you think you are. And maybe you say, well, I understand that. Man, I've got a lot of baggage. I got a lot of baggage from the rat race. I got a lot of baggage from church. I'm with you. 20 years of it. I got a lot of baggage. And it's very easy for me, even as a pastor, to go, nope, not opening up, not letting myself in. I don't want to go there again. You need it. You can't grow without it. Listen, here's your takeaway today. You need God's people. And God's people need you. Don't go it alone. Be a part of God's work in his church. Yes, it's broken. No, it's broken. That's why his grace is sufficient for us. God loves his church. Jesus laid down his life for the church. It's the primary means in which you grow, in which you have life and sustenance. You need God's people and God's people need you. Let me pray.